You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Woman on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past and present and the owners of the land you are hearing us from. This week on Woman on the Line, we discuss self-disclosure, a behaviour that on the surface sounds harmless, but when we do it excessively, can be overwhelming for the listener and pretty awkward for the sharer. Clinical psychologist and academic Kim Flemingham helps us understand this common, albeit embarrassing, habit. And later in the program, Kristen O'Connell and Priya Kunjan discuss the rising cost of living and its impact on people living in poverty. Kristen O'Connell is the research and policy expert at the Anti-Poverty Centre and Priya Kunjan is one of the presenters of 3CR's Thursday Breakfast Program and Woman on the Line. And now, my interview with Kim Flemingham on self-disclosure. Welcome to Woman on the Line, Kim. Thank you very much, Ayan. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm so glad to have you on and I can't wait to talk about a topic that has been the bane of my existence and I'm sure has given you a bit of a, a issue and it's given a lot of us issues. But before we do that, let's get to know you first. Can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself as well as why this issue is interesting to you? Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I uh, work in private practice. I also teach at University of Melbourne and actually I train clinical psychologists to be do therapy. So, you know, self-disclosure and empathy and all of these types of things are really important in training. But, you know, I think um, just in my personal life as well, it's really quite fascinating how we deepen friendships, how, you know, and I think especially for women, you know, we know that women uh, actually have form deeper connections and longer lasting friendships and relationships through their lives. So I'm, I'm quite interested in that aspect of it as well. And what is self-disclosure in psychology? Yeah, so what it's defined as or what the research defines it as is really just sharing aspects about your inner life, perhaps your emotions, past experiences that you know, it might make you a little bit vulnerable in some ways. It sort of takes a little bit more trust. You're sharing things that you may not share with every person. Um, and that self-disclosure, we know it's actually a way of bonding and deepening friendships and intimacy with others because if you start to share something that's quite intimate or personal about yourself, it makes another person feel trusted that you're trusting them and then they can respond and they may share some of their experiences. So that's how it's um, used really as a bonding tool to deepen friendships. Some of my best friends and some of my most I guess notable experiences has been through you know moments where I've disclosed private information about myself you know but my Mm. sister is the complete opposite where the thought of sharing makes her Mm. shiver it makes her feel a bit exposed Um, why do you think you know there are those who are just comfortable rattling all about Mm. their lives while others are just more private and keep to themselves Mm. Yeah, look, it's a really good question. And you're right, it's not just down gender lines. That's a generalisation. 
there's a lot of individual variance and I think that comes down there's a strong um, influence of personality so whether you're an extrovert or more on the introverted line so people who are a bit more introverted are less comfortable about sharing um, and self-disclosure than people who typically are more extroverted but also sometimes you might have things like shyness or a bit of social anxiety coming in into play if um, people feel a bit anxious about how others view them, then they may be a bit more inhibited in sharing their experiences as well. I think as well, maybe if you've had some, you know, maybe you've been burnt a bit with relationships in the past, like friendships haven't worked out or you've been betrayed in the past, you might be a little bit more cautious as well, perhaps. Mm. And why is it off-putting to some people like when does it become an issue yeah so look I think that's what um, I was writing about in the article is you know when it just self-disclosure works and it's balanced we call it reciprocal so you're sharing things about yourself and someone else has an equal part where they feel listened to you feel listened to you share bits about yourself they share bits and it's balanced when it can become a bit more of an issue where it's off-putting is if it's a bit of a one-way street, um, if someone's just oversharing all the time and you don't get a word in edgeways, it can feel a little unbalanced and you can feel a bit exploited. But another thing I think I wrote about is, you know, if you share something and someone sort of goes, oh, yeah, that's just like me, I, and they sort of cut you off, that can make people feel a little bit, invalidated and the other person may not be meaning that it's just they want they're eager to share their thing but it just we need to sort of slow down and give each other time and space to just explore your feelings and allow yourself to feel heard I guess and then then it works really beautifully as a way of bonding I love the term reciprocal because it's so different from transactional and sometimes mm. it can be transactional um you also mentioned that self so self-disclosure, there's a bit of um, kind of like a reward. Mm. There's benefits to it. Can you say more on that? Yeah. So, look, I think it's about, you know, I think it's human nature that we want to feel heard and really have a, a place where there's someone we can confide in about our deepest feelings, our deepest fears, maybe some experiences we've had that we don't, you know, we, we're trying to understand or make sense of. So, but what's really important there is that sense of feeling heard and feeling accepted and not judged or, you know, not invalidated in some way. And so I think if someone comes in with their experience too quickly, you sort of feel like, you know, the focus has been taken off you and it's about the other person again. And so that's where you can start to feel a bit shut down or a bit, you know, just that, that someone's not really listening or not really caring about you so much. So what I'm hearing okay. is that timing is key. It's not necessarily okay. about, you know, not sharing but knowing when to share and it can be really quite subtle. It might just be, you know, another 30 seconds or a minute and just asking a follow-up question. So it's not like you don't, you know, you're not going to share at all in that conversation, but it's just slowing down and going, wow, that, that you know, just that must have been really tough for you and how, how have you been about that? Just asking a follow-up question, exploring it for that person, and then you can bring in your own experiences and then that will make it more reciprocal and more balanced for sure. Holding space is so difficult and 
I don't know where we get the idea that silence is something bad. I know I struggled for a long time, especially with radio, to give it a few seconds before I talk because I have all these ideas rushing in and, you know, I'm so focused on getting everything out that I forget the other person in the process, which can be pretty annoying because you miss out on these, like, golden moments. Um, Mm. How do you – so – Let's say, you know, you know someone who shares quite a bit and it can be overwhelming. How do you let them know gently, like, yo, this is too much, but also mm-hmm. be kind about it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, it can be a, a tricky thing to bring up and say without it sounding like an accusation, can't it? Like, you know, you don't want someone to feel blamed or shamed by you bringing it up, but... I'd probably say that, you know, I'd do something very gentle like saying, you know, when I was trying to tell you that thing actually, you know, that was really upsetting to me and I I felt like, you know, I just didn't have enough space to really get it all out and talk about it and share it with you. You know, we sort of moved on to talk about other things and it would be great if we could just spend a little bit more time. You know, a lot of the time I think um, when we jump in like that, Sometimes it's because we feel uncomfortable that our friend's distressed or a bit sad and we want to help them. We sort of want to fix it, you know, and go, you'll be okay or let's do this or have you thought about that? And we sort of suggest solutions. And, again, sometimes people may either not be in the space where they're capable of doing that solution or maybe that worked for you but it may not work for another person. And so I think that's actually really important to be sensitive of and aware of that we're all really different. We've all got different resources and and capabilities at different times too. So, you know, if that's what's happened with your friend, you might gently say to them, look, you know, this is actually something I I don't want to fix. I just want someone to that I can, you know, give me a hug and I can share my feelings with rather than having a solution for it, you know. And that might be a nice way to say it because it's going to make the other person not feel blamed or ashamed. Yeah, and you never want to, yeah, make your friend feel terrible about sharing something that clearly means a lot to them. But yeah. it's such it's such a skill and that's something I'm learning in my new career as a community development worker, that it's okay Mm. not to have the answers. It's okay not to know where to go from there. That also there will be a time when you do know, but to be present in the moment, that's, it sounds easy, but. It does sound easy, doesn't it? And that's what we teach. I mean, the trainee therapists, you know, as therapists, we don't disclose stuff about ourselves and it's actually about creating the safe space and and having that silence so that the client can explore their own feelings before so we we validate before we change you know we allow that space and that time before you might help someone towards a solution because otherwise people can feel a bit shut down like they don't have the space for their emotions so it is a hard thing to learn, though. It's it's not natural. I think if you're an extroverted or a warm person, then you, your natural inclination is to jump in. So <laughs> I feel like your articles came at the most perfect time in my life, and I'm glad that I sat down and, and spoke to you. Um, before I let you go, do you have any final thoughts, reflections? 
Oh, I think, you know, I think what you said before of not being afraid of a bit of silence and to slow down, you know, so it's, I, I wouldn't want a message to come across of not share your experiences, but, you know, just slowing it down a bit so you're doing a few follow-up questions and allowing space for your friend to explore what they're sharing before you come in with your own experience. And I think often being aware too that your experience isn't going to be the same as someone else's, even if you've both had a relationship breakup or even if on paper the same thing looks like it's happened to each of you, actually the way we respond is really different. That was researcher and clinical psychologist Kim Flemingham reminding us to pause and slow down. Kim Flemingham's articles on self-disclosure can be read online in the conversation. We'll share a link to those articles on our 3CR page at 3cr.org.au forward slash woman on the line. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Woman on the Line. In this next interview, Kristen O'Connell and Priya Kunjan look at the rising cost of living and how it's hurting those already trapped in poverty. This interview first aired on Thursday Breakfast. Enjoy. Attending to speaking plainly about economic inequality is, I think, all the more pressing given the ongoing cost of living crisis. And despite uh, a small retreat in Australia's monthly inflation rate in May, which was reported yesterday, the cumulative blowout in living costs over the past year or so has really highlighted the urgent need for redistributive social policy. So before we get into what those changes might look like, I was hoping you could speak to how Instead of spurring targeted political action at scale, the cost of living crisis has almost increased the normalisation of poverty in Australia. Yeah, thanks, Priya. Um, if only it was a small problem, hey? Seeing the what, what was a very severe poverty crisis creeping up the income scale now to affect so many more people and the total lack of urgency among political leaders to make sure that there is genuine relief for people and that they are acting to ensure that, you know, this is a crisis. We just a few years ago went through an economic crisis in response to a global pandemic. And for all of the flaws of the horrific conservative government at the time, they took urgent action and they took action at scale. And this is a crisis that requires um, just such action. Um, So we are... Um, it is quite despairing, I suppose, um, to see not only the lack of action from government, but the um, really cynical obfuscation of what's going on and the misdirection with their rhetoric around, um, you know, saying that they're there to help vulnerable people, talking themselves up as if they're doing all of these wonderful things. And I think yesterday was one of the many jarring examples of cognitive dissonance where we had the treasurer saying in one interview that... It was great that there was a higher budget surplus because it was important to take money out of the economy to control inflation. He also said yesterday in a different interview that it's great that there's a budget surplus because that's what they need to spend money to help with people who are struggling with the cost of living. So obviously these things cannot be true at the same time. And of course there is a budget surplus because they are not spending money to help people who need it. And um, it really seems at the moment that what they're doing is trying to find the bare minimum they can get away with so that the broader public believes action is being taken, whilst in reality very little is being done and very little money is being spent on people who need it the most 
while these profligate um, projects are being rolled out like AUKUS and, and many other really expensive things, t- corporate tax cuts, etc. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, it's not often that you can directly point to expenditure that could be redirected to uh, towards, you know, social policy and like actually, you know, strengthening our social safety net. But AUKUS is definitely one of those things. Um, so, yeah, as you said, the, the federal government was lauding their even bigger than expected budget surplus, but at the same time claiming that they're doing what they can to help help people, quote, doing it tough, end quote. They, that's, that's, a, that's the language that I, I see used quite a lot. Um, so this attempt to try and strike a balance between appealing to fiscally conservative voters and then trying to appear compassionate has been pretty, pretty stark. And uh, it's included jabs at anti-poverty activists for being impractical or utopian in demands. So can you just run us through what was on the table in the May federal budget for people at the highest and lowest ends of Australia's income distribution again? Yeah, I think it's pretty bleak if we're saying that... um there shouldn't be poverty is utopian. Uh, There's a lot of things that I'd have in my utopia that go a bit beyond that. Um, In the budget... um, you know, so so I guess back to that issue of the fact that there is really obvious spending that could be redirected to welfare. Um, that is true, obviously, but I guess I always want to remind people that governments have many choices and they don't actually have – it's not a zero-sum game. <clears throat> so if they really, really desperately need these corporate tax cuts that's such – that they say they do, they also can spend money on welfare. It's actually not a matter of one or the other. They can choose to do both if that's what their priorities are. So I think that really exposes, again, even more how low a priority they're placing on doing what is really needed to help people. So to um, your earlier comment about inflation, the the very significant inflation slowly slowing. (laughs) Um, And I was just commenting last night that if we had seen above 5% inflation sort of uh, a couple of years ago, people would have been saying the sky is falling in. So Mm -hmm. 5% is certainly not um, looking good from Mm -hmm. a government perspective. And I think there was another figure there that if you took into account certain very volatile categories, it's still over 6%. So we have this situation where inflation is high, inflation or CPI does not capture the increase in living costs, the lowest end of the income scale. So for most people um, who are surviving on bare minimum, our costs go up much faster than that. Um, and what that means is that things in the in the budget, for example, a $20 a week uh, change to the job seeker payment means that for most people, they're still actually going to be worse off than they were six or 12 months ago. Because things have gotten far more expensive, you know, $20 a week for most people now, for basically anyone who's had to um, sign a new lease, your your lease has gone up if you're a renter by more than $20. Um, that doesn't even obviously begin to touch the sides on energy prices, um, food prices, fuel prices, um, and, and everything else that we need. So um, we've got the $20 a week. Uh, we have a... I mean, the increase to to Commonwealth rent assistance for people on social security payments is 15%, um, <clears throat> which sounds like a lot of money until you realise that Commonwealth rent assistance is basically nothing. Um, so, for example, it's about uh, – the maximum is about $75 a week. Um, in my case, I pay 83% of my DSP in rent um, and getting an extra 15% is not – going to move that needle very much at all. Um, And, you know, I 
pay that much of my income in rent for a property where my windows don't close and there are many, many, many other problems with it. It's a very low standard. So um, these are like, you know, really nothing. Um, the government's also talking about its $500 energy payment um, for a start. That actually isn't $500 in most states. For example, here in Victoria, you have a state government program that's $250 per year. So the federal government has only allowed $250 in energy payment relief for people in Victoria. Um, of course, the rate of increase in energy payments also means that it's far outstripping that. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the, I mean, another uh, thing that the government has done is increase the age of the youngest child for a parent receiving parenting payment, which is good. Um, it was changed from 16 years of age down to eight uh, in the early 2000s. Um, however, the parenting payment is well below the poverty line. So there's been a lot of celebration of this change, but we still have those parents, although they are not being thrown into even deeper poverty when their kid turns eight, they're still in deep poverty. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there's so many things that, as I said, are designed to look as if they're helping, but really are not doing a lot. So something that we spoke about before this interview was the wholly unproductive framing of poverty as a politically partisan issue. And this has led to some pretty toxic political discourse around people living in poverty in Australia. And ultimately, I think it fuels the objectification of people living in poverty instead of centering their lived expertise, which is how we've recently ended up with uh, permanent income management, for example. So how do we shift the conversation out of this mire? Yeah, and it's particularly galling, again, when we have this gaslighting um, from the Prime Minister who is constantly talking about having come from public housing in his background and his mum relying on disability payments. And, you know, what he never recognises, of course, is the adequacy of those payments at the time was much greater. Um, Access to public housing was much greater. The quality of public housing was much better. I actually live like a block from the house that he grew up in. Even now, it's it's obviously degraded and not being maintained, but it's probably in better shape than the private rental I'm in. So I think we've got this situation where both political parties are seeking to score points off welfare recipients. And it's been that way for a long time. Um, The Dole Bludger myth was first um, entered Australian political discourse in the 70s under the Whitlam government when the decision was made to move away from full employment policy. And um, over time, we've seen that morph into the concept of welfare dependency. So we're supposed to think that these people who are suggesting that we need our lives controlled through things like the income control program and other paternalistic measures are benevolent and they're just there to help us because we're not competent managers of our own lives. So I think there's a couple of things necessary. One is that people, we do need to reorient um, people's understanding of who should be leading conversations about poverty and um At the moment, there is no respect for the expertise of people who rely on the welfare system. Um, We do not accept that uh, men should make and dictate um, policies about women. We do not accept that, or certainly people on the progressive side of politics do not accept that disability policy, First Nations policy, um, policies affecting queer folks should be made by people who don't have those experiences. And it should be the same for people in poverty. So what we um, have been working on. You know, the anti <clears throat> sorry, the anti poverty centre actually exists for this reason, right? Because we were sick of paid advocates who have no understanding of our lives um, being the ones getting to decide what sort of policies that should be asked for from government. Um, we need to have this whole um, system removed from the hands of politicians who are trying to beat us up to win elections. 
we have a Fair Work Commission. We have a Reserve Bank of Australia. These are institutions that make decisions independent of government that have um, an enormous impact on the broader economy and on the federal budget itself. And we need to see these types of decisions put into an independent context in terms of welfare payments. And if we did do that, it would actually have a far smaller effect on the economy than those sorts of decisions from those two bodies. So we need those decisions out of politicians' hands and we need them based on evidence. So one of the other pieces we've been working on is um, a proposal for a far more sophisticated measure of poverty, a modern measure of poverty. None of the poverty lines we have right now are adequate, although the Henderson poverty line, which is about $600 a week, is kind of the least bad one. Um, when you talked earlier about things like the cost of healthcare, a really sophisticated poverty measure would first account for those costs. And then if governments did something good, for example, like make greater investment in Medicare, greater investment in public housing, that the cost of living would come down and the poverty line may reduce. Um, So these are the kinds of things we think are pretty obvious, actually, um, but just aren't even in the discourse at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it it really does speak to this um, complete sort of consideration of Social Security as still like a a residual category, uh, even though so many people in this country, whether or not that is the primary source of income they access, access Social Security payments. Um, Now, I know we've also sort of touched on housing a couple of times uh, across this conversation, but I wanted to get your thoughts on the the highly charged public debate around the Housing Australia Future Fund, because that's also been framed as a politically partisan issue. But it actually looks much more like people experiencing housing insecurity, supporting, um, you know, demands from parties like the Greens for immediate improvements to their living circumstances. So what's your take on what the bill currently has to offer people living below the poverty line and um, on some of those proposed Greens amendments and, uh, I guess, the pushback till October? Well, I think, um, again, this housing fund, which we don't support and we did um, put in a submission to the bill inquiry for this package um, saying it shouldn't pass. And I don't think there were any other submissions that said it shouldn't pass, Um, certainly not from the progressive or left side of politics. Um, but it's just another example of the government uh, trying to come up with these highly technocratic, um, you know, really unnecessarily complicated attempts to, air quote, solve a problem or in, more importantly, look like they're doing something about a problem in, when in practice it's doing very little. And I think the nature market and many, many other examples in climate policy is a, a really, you know, relevant here as well. Um, the housing fund, I think people are pretty well versed now in what's wrong with it, but Obviously, the way I like to think about it is for most people who want to own a home, if you suggested to them that what they should do is invest their deposit in Apple stocks and wait for returns from the Apple stocks and use just the returns to try and use as a deposit for a home, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. (laughs) And it would probably mean you would never end up with a home, although that's the reality for most of us these days anyway. Um, So we've got the housing fund. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. That was the first two parts of Priya's interview with Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre. You can listen to the rest of the interview by visiting 3cr.org.au forward slash Thursday Breakfast. Woman on the Line is a community radio national woman's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of broadcasters, from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate the financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show. So send us an email to womanontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03-9419-8377. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash Women on the Line. The theme music for Woman on the Line is by Ripley Guevara. I'm Ian Shirwa and you've been listening to Woman on the Line. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.